Our scripture reading today is from John 6, 1 through 15. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We really are blessed that the Johns are continuing to be a part of the Lake Avenue Church family. Um, I think it's beautiful. In fact, tonight, if you would like to get to know Matthew a bit more, he'll be preaching at our evening service at six o'clock, the exact same text I'm preaching. If you like his better, just keep that to yourself, okay? <laughs> Fish and the loaves. I, I honestly say this all the time. Sometimes I quip by saying it. Uh, the context would be something like this. I'm with a staff member at the church, the calculations are off. There's some stress setting in that there's not gonna be enough or the plans that have been prepared, it, it, it's, something's gonna happen. What we thought was gonna happen and some concern and I will say as a joke but also kind of serious, fish in the loaves, we're fine. Or in our own home, one of the things that I love to do um, is we just love having large groups of people in our home. And I love doing the math, and I love thinking about how many people and how many portions based on who's coming and my own portion, which is significant. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, people start coming, and more people are coming, and what would stress some out, I just really cry out at times, fish in the loaves, we're fine. This week, twice, twice this week, former students who are now in their 20s, on a moment's notice are texting because they need to come over and talk about something, and and I'm aware it's dinner time, and I'm aware that they probably haven't eaten, and I'm not sure what we have, but fish in the loaves, we're fine. Jenny doesn't track with me all the time on that kind of <laughs> optimism. Um, but while you might not share my experiences or use the phrase the way I do, the reality is that if you've been around Jesus, if you've been around the Bible, if you've been around church, you know this story. Even if you haven't been around church, chances are you know this story. And this story is one we are taught uh, from our youngest of ages. I can feel the flannel board. I can feel and hear my Sunday school teachers talking about the fish and the loaves and this miracle. And then we're, we're quick to find out that 5,000, because they only counted the men, but when you really do the math and think about it, it's probably 20,000 people. And the, the miracle is compelling. The story is compelling. It's the only miracle, the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. 
It's a story that's gripping, even as we heard it read this morning. We, we see a very clear problem. We sense attention, and in comes Jesus, and he does something Jesus-like, and all of a sudden, not only are 20,000 or so people fed, but the, the text tells us that there's extra, there's leftovers, and it's gripping, and it's all true. It's true that the story is about Jesus who sees physical need of people and takes care of them much beyond what they need in that moment. But it's a Jesus who provides an abundance. It's true that Jesus can use anything to bring about blessing and provision. Even this young child's sack lunch, Jesus can take that and do something incredible. It's true. It's true that Jesus cannot be contained within human calculations. It's true. When everybody else saw a problem or an impossibility, here comes Jesus and he does something incredible. We meet a Jesus who moves and works in supernatural ways and it's all true. And all of it is found in this text, but this week I've wondered as I've been in study if there's some more to the story some parts of this story that because it's such a familiar text to so many of us and we we get the beat and the rhythm of this story, there's a problem, here's the solution, and and we end it there, and we know it so well because we've been around it so much. I'm wondering, and what we'll wonder together this morning, is if there's some other parts of this text that are a little more quiet in our hearts and our lives, because I've got to believe I've got to believe that if God has put this miracle as the only miracle in all four Gospels, that it is in there more than just to give me encouragement when we're having a dinner party. I've got to believe, and we have to believe, that this miracle says more than just when when it looks like there's not going to be enough food that we can declare fish in the loaves and everything's gonna be fine. There's got to be something more. When, when the story shows up four times, that should be a blinking red light to all of us who take the word of God very seriously and center our lives on it, that there's something about the story that we need to pay attention to. There's something about the story that we need to deal with and to investigate, and we'll do that today. It's such a familiar narrative. It's the fifth sign in the book of John. You, you know the story well. Jesus is traveling. We find out there's, it's a time of Passover. We find that as he's traveling with his disciples, the crowds are starting to hear about all these miracles that he is doing, the miracles we've been learning about week after week in this series, and, and now the, the crowds are growing and following him. Uh, we, we get the scene that this crowd is below and then he's up on the mountainside with his disciples and he's having a conversation with them. The text tells us that he's testing them. They're anticipating this crowd with no food and what are we gonna do? And Jesus is in this intimate teaching time with his disciples. We find that Jesus ultimately will take the meal of this young boy, he will pray and bless it, and he will organize this 20,000 or so group of people, everybody will get their fill, there'll be 12 baskets left over, everybody is so excited, there's this part of the text we don't talk about in Sunday school where it says they wanted to make him king by force, and then Jesus leaves, escapes this scene into the wilderness. That's the story. Context is so important. I am not, I'll admit to you, I am not a big Star Wars person. I think it's because I was raised by a single mom and I'm really into like Grease, you know, with musicals. But I've got two boys and they're into Star Wars and so I'm learning about Star Wars and and I, I guess the part I'm so thankful for in Star Wars is that notorious way that it begins where the music begins and all of a sudden the words start scrolling up and for novices like me, I need to read every word because I'm like, what, what planet are we on and who, how old is Luke and what's going on and Darth Vader who and it's context. It's very helpful for the scenes that will follow without framing the story, without framing the film, many of us will be left off unless we're con- complete experts in Star Wars. Now, I want you to understand, I am not equating the fictional story of Star Wars to the factual events of the Bible at all, but I am saying that context matters. And in the 15 verses that we have read, they are soaked in context that you and I, frankly, were just not familiar with. Unless you have a degree in ancient Jewish culture, 
which there are some. In fact, there's a professor of Jewish culture, a parent on my baseball team this year, incredible people. So I know some people exist. But a lot of us don't live in ancient times, and we certainly don't live in Jewish cultural times. And that's the con. There's so much imagery. There is so much reference. There is so much in these 15 verses that require us to know what exactly is going on within this context, in this community, that we've got to pause for a moment and do a little calibrating together. So let's do that today. There's four things I want to point out. They're going to help us in our understanding of the text. They're not the comprehensive four parts of the Jewish imagery and context of this story, but they are helpful in the way we'll come to see the text today. So the first one I want you to notice is in verse 4. It says it was the time of the Jewish Passover. Now, this is incredible. These kind of details are in the scripture for a couple of reasons. One, it marks time. Instead of a date or or a time of day, these kinds of things the writers put in the scripture so that we can travel along with the life of Jesus and we look at the last time. And so what we know is some time has passed, but this detail isn't also benign. It's not like, hey, it was springtime. It points to a very specific kind of world celebration, the people, the Jewish people, the mindset they were in. It's both to mark the time but also the larger context of the scene. The Passover is a religious and cultural holiday for these people. Now I'm gonna say it's kind of like Christmas in the sense that for devout Jews, they really entered into the, to the religious aspect of the Passover. So for some, it was a very religious time of year. Yet for others, just like Christmas, there's also some cultural realities. Kind of the difference between entering Christmas with Jesus as the main topic versus Santa with the main topic. So in a sense, this time of Passover was a time of great Jewish ethnic remembering and pride, and some of them were in a place of devotion to Yahweh, the the living God, and many of them, it was just what we did culturally. And now I'll say it was more like the 4th of July, in a sense, for those kind of people. A time of great remembering who we are as a people, maybe not remembering who God is as our rescuer. So the Jewish Passover festival, the mindset of, the, of, of many was one of very aware of their Jewish identity, very aware of their history as a Jewish people of some darker times and a remembering, a memory that they're no longer in Egypt as slaves, that they've been delivered, although they're not in like the, the best of moments historically, but they're certainly not back in Egypt. Often Passover we think about as really focused on just the liberation, that moment they left Egypt, the Israelites. But what we find in this text is that the depth of that Exodus story is being zeroed in here. Why we look at the feeding of the 5,000 and, and this group of people at a time of Passover would be very aware and remember the time in the wilderness where they had no food and God provides manna from heaven. There's connection. There's stories that are connecting here for them. The people are in a time of holiday, remembering a time of provision, remembering a better time than their past, and it's so interesting when you think about better, if you go to Exodus 16 and read about the manna from heaven, it's not like they were that grateful when all this happened before, but anyway, that's just how we are. We think better of the past than we do in the moment. And I think this matters as it relates to the crowd wanting to make Jesus king, to be a new kind of Moses, a Moses who would deliver them again, this time not from Egypt, but this time from Rome, a new crowd in hopes that they will be led out of this situation with this new kind of Moses-type person who does miraculous things, kind of like Moses. So we have to understand from the crowd's perspective, they are seeing a Moses-like person in Jesus. We'll get to what the crowd's doing in a moment. So I want you to see the Passover being significant for context. Second, this blessing. It's not a minor detail when Jesus, before he does this miracle, it says that he blessed the food and then they handed it out. The blessing in this kind of context was done by the host of the meal. Jesus, in all these signs, is essentially pointing to his messiahship, to his godship, 
And when he is taking these five pieces of bread, these two fish, and he is blessing it before the large crowd, he is declaring, this is my meal. I'm about to host you. I'm about to do something. It was common for the host of the meal to offer the blessing, which is still common for many of you, except when I'm with you, then you want me to pray for the dinner. And if you have Jewish friends or Messianic Jewish friends and you've ever celebrated the Shabbat with them, I believe it was the same prayer that's prayed today. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. If you have Jewish friends, you have heard and prayed that with them. So what we're gonna see throughout this story and throughout each sign of Jesus and John, Jesus is pointing to his lordship, to his messiahship, while people merely want to see Jesus as this kind of religious figure, this new Moses, maybe like a, a person plus or a Moses plus, Jesus, by blessing this meal and doing the miracle for them, there was no, no gray area. It wasn't coming from this cosmic place where you wake up and the bread is there like, man, it happened right in front of their eyes. Jesus was declaring his messiahship and the blessing. The 12 baskets, verse 13, really important. Number 12, not accidental, not random. We have 12 tribes of Israel. We have 12 disciples. This is a link. This is a way of Jesus saying that same Yahweh who had a 12, I've got a 12 too, they're right here, and there's gonna be 12 baskets. It's a continuation. It's saying I'm connected. I am from Yahweh, the living God. I've added another one that's not on the slide, but even the mountain reference. When Jesus pulls away from the crowd up to the mountain with his disciples, who else pulled away from the crowds up to the mountain to connect with God? Moses. See how it's just soaking in the redemption story of God's people in the Exodus. Finally, in verse 14, the prophet. Now this is one we're a little more familiar with because we talk about it a lot. This is the refrain from the people calling Jesus a prophet and it's rooted in Old Testament messianic expectations former promises of, a, of one who will come. Now, as specifically for this text, there's a lot of excitement that there's this human being that has come and he's starting to heal people and, and now this group of people have, have eaten from this miracle from his very prayer, from his very hands. And the crowd is saying, yeah, this, this one, the prophet, he's the one, he's the one, probably very aware of Deuteronomy 18, Moses, right? Soaked in Moses, Listen to Moses' own words in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, your own people. You must listen to him. Prophet. This is the one Moses told us about. Look how connected he is to Moses. Look, he's so Moses-like. Look at this scene. He's the one. He's the new Moses. Deuteronomy 18 was there evidence, the prophet. So we're soaking here. We are soaking in so much of the Old Testament. We are soaking in so much kind of ancient Jewish world and context that sets the stage for what for many of us has been a very and is and it's powerful because God's word is crazy. It will do anything at any time. It will even take a very linear story about a group of hungry people who need some lunch and Jesus does something and they're fed, which is honestly the very story many of us follow in this text. And all of a sudden it's starting to become much more complicated, much bigger. So instead of looking at this story in a linear way, I wanna just do it through character study today. I wanna really briefly go through all the players in this text so we can see not only how they function and interact in this, these 15 verses, but I think if we're honest, we will see ourselves in each one of these different kinds of people or a longing, a longing to see ourselves in some of these people. So the first group I wanna look at are the disciples and specifically Philip and Andrew. But the disciples in general, notice what's happening with them in this text. They've been with Jesus a while now. The text tells us that. They've seen him do some miraculous things. He, they've watched the water turn to wine. They've watched people who were dead be raised to life. They've watched someone who was an invalid for 38 years leave and pick up their mat and walk. They have seen Jesus do some incredible things. 
They've seen four prior signs. They've been around Jesus' teaching, and we get a glimpse in this text about their relationship with Jesus, that they weren't simply carrying Jesus' luggage as he was going around the world and teaching. We get a glimpse of the intimacy that Jesus has with his disciples when, when he pulls away from the crowd up to the mountain and he's, he's talking to them. The, the text tells us he tested them. He's asking them, what do you think we should do in this situation? We see a, a, a rabbi. We see someone who's got his disciples and spending his life investing and teaching in the way of living and the way of understanding God. It's intimate. It includes, it includes instructing and teaching and intimacy. Some would say that this interaction of Jesus with his disciples in this particular story is one of the most underemphasized parts of the story. We just kind of take it for granted. Yeah, he's up on the hillside with his disciples. But the intimacy, the intentionality that Jesus, and so the question is, when we think about that with the disciples, what adjectives might describe your relationship with Jesus. Do do you get up on the hillside with Jesus? Do you have him continuing to teach you? To test you, to see what you know and how it works? And I'll admit, because this is the time of year where we are celebrating graduations. There are so many graduations in the life of Lake Avenue Church. And I'm struck with the similarity sometimes of the way we think about Jesus and following Jesus and its similarity to the way we apply to college. We get accepted. It's an amazing application process. Jesus actually takes care of all of it. He says, you're in. And if we're not careful, we start walking around like we've already earned the degree. I don't need to change anything. I'm in. Now, when our students go to college next year, the accepting process, being accepted to that school, is only the beginning of the journey of learning. And following Jesus isn't just getting into the club of Christianity or to the church. That one's awesome. Jesus took care of that. But what's your journey with Jesus look like? Do you walk with him? Do you find yourself on the mountainside with him? Do you find yourself in situations where he's asking you, what about, what about here? What are we supposed to do here? I, I think the intimacy of a disciple speaks in this text. Philip. Oh, I love Philip. He's our math man. He's our Caltech, our JPL. He's the engineer. If you recall, the problem is clear. How are we going to feed these people? And he's doing the math. He's going, do, 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 do. You know how much? That's like a year's wages, half a year's wages. We, we don't have enough money for that. I mean, he's, he's rational. He does quick calculations, and he brings his conclusion to Jesus, and his conclusion is this, that based on all the data, based on best practices, there's not much we can do here, Jesus. Remember, this is the same Philip who has seen Jesus do miracles, and yet he still defaults to math and statistics. Jesus will soon show that he will not be limited and cannot be contained in human equations and calculations. Now, surely Philip is not the only one making calculations on what Jesus can and cannot do. He isn't the only one looking out and doing the math on what is supposed to happen. I would argue this, just organizationally, us at Lake Avenue Church, we've got a whole lot of Philip in us a whole lot of the time. And there's a great distinction between being wise and being good stewards, but if we are not careful, we can quench the work of God by telling God what he can and can't do based on what we've seen or what we expect or what has been done before. I think it's, it's a tug and it's a dance and it should be a thing we wrestle with year in and year out. Uh, the framers of Lake Avenue Church saw it fit that once a year we would come together and create ministry goals. I think that's beautiful and I think that's wise and we ought to do that with prayer and discernment. But the danger in that is we can say this is what we think God is calling us to do, but if God shows up and does something different, we ought to be nimble enough to go, this is God's church, not ours. We cannot just 
do the math, do the calculations, and tell Jesus what he's gonna do. So Philip isn't one for us to look at and judge. Philip is one that I look at and repent myself. And then there's Andrew. Andrew gets the better rap sometimes. He was the one that saw the potential. I mean, he's the one that got the boy and brought him to Jesus. But, but in all honesty, really, verse 9, Andrew says to Jesus, but how far will this go among so many? Jesus, Andrew, again, sees the need, does a quick survey of the resources, and is quick to also tell Jesus there's not much we can do here. All we have is this little boy's lunch. Andrew's response was, we don't have enough. His response was scarcity. Scarcity is a human response to need. And we've got to own that in each one of our hearts and minds. The needs are many in this world. And oftentimes our response is like Andrew, but, but what can we really do about that? We only have this. In the face of scarcity, Jesus shows up in abundance. And so we have to admit, too, that we have Andrew-like reflexes when it comes to needs. That we have eyes, often we can see the needs among us, but the truth is, there's so many times where we just kind of go, there's not much we can do about that. So we don't enter it the way Jesus will end up entering this situation. Andrew saw the need, saw the resources as slight. It was an issue of faith. And it was a lack of belief that Jesus is a God of abundance. I've told this story before, but when we had Henry, I was with a friend one day, and we were debating. We had done all the math, and inside of us, we really felt like, gosh, it would be great if for Jenny to take some time off of work. She was a full-time teacher at the time, and we're doing the calculations, and we're doing all these things, and my friend just, after listening to me, and well, we could go part-time here, and we could do this here, and, and he looked at me, and he goes, why do you think all the right decisions mean you're gonna make money? What is it about the way you do calculations that say, if, if we just make all the right decisions, then we're gonna come out ahead financially? And that was like, that was like a, Punch in the gut to go, you're so right that you can actually make the right decisions and it might not benefit you financially. And I'll tell you this, 11, almost 11 years later, we have seen Jesus show up and provide for us in abundance. More than we would ever imagine if Jenny would have, we would have just forced something. Well, you're part of that abundance, so thank you. And as Jenny goes back to work this fall for the full time and we're thrilled by that, we just go, God, you're amazing. Look, at you took care of us for the season we sensed you called us to. Scarcity is a human response and we serve a God of abundance. Now let's look at the boy. We won't get into him too much, but you know how this goes. Children in the ancient world, there's not much there in terms of esteem or respect. God uses an unlikely source. He uses what seems to be too small to make any difference, both in the boy and in the boy's lunch. He uses this boy in his meager meal very intentionally. This boy, honestly, is in juxtaposition to the rational, educated minds of the disciples. We've got an engineer who's done the math, we can't do anything about it, and we have a boy just offering his little lunch. Juxtaposition of who God's going to use to do his work. This boy was nothing in that culture and what he had was very minimal, and yet, this story, the boy simply gave what he had and watched Jesus work. I think this is what it means in Mark chapter 10 when Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Children aren't just cute little things walking around with parents. Children, time and time again, are the source of wisdom Time and time again, they're given to us to correct us, to show us what real faith and real living looks like. Who are you not seeing? If you don't know any children, you've got to know some children. I just finished coaching farm baseball, and it was a playoff game, which is, as a total aside, it's ridiculous to have playoffs for nine-year-olds, or uh, seven-year-olds. And I'm, 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 I'm competitive. 
And if we lose, we're out. And this beautiful boy on my team, one of my favorite kids all season, he hits this great ball. And he runs to first. And I am more focused. Like, okay, so now when this, we're, we've got two outs. You run on anything, okay? So when this hits, I want you to go second, but I want you to look at third base because Coach Jordan's over there, and he's going to tell you, and we're going to try to get a run here because we're down. I'm going this. And this kid just smiled at me and goes, wasn't that a good hit, Coach? <laughs> and I went, and I hugged him. I go, well, it was a good hit. And I'm like, who cares? I, he doesn't care. <laughs> I was like, settle down, Jeff. <laughs> Seven-year-old playoffs, buddy. <laughs> Because children correct us, they bring us perspective, and they actually show us what Jesus can do. Because too often we just go to the stats, and the kids just go, what about, come on. You need some kids. The crowd. This is the height of Jesus' popularity. By the end of chapter six, you're gonna see that this, this is the height because people start moving away. The more Jesus starts talking about that he's actually the Lord, people are like, oh, okay, I'm out. I don't know about this. We see disciples moving away. We see followers, crowds dwindling. These same crowds that want to be near him now are the crowds that are going to crucify him. This is the height. They, they were following him because they were hearing about what he was doing with the sick. They were intrigued for what Jesus could do for them in this life. Their sickness, their families, their needs. And we can't judge them. Jesus, they didn't know that Jesus was God. In fact, Jesus becomes much louder about his godness in this chapter. And the more he's loud about God, like I just said, the crowds start to dwindle. Because at the end of the day, they just wanted a miracle worker superstar. They wanted an earthly king who would do something for their life right here and now. And Jesus is coming, and he's saying, I'm not just the king of this, I'm the king of all. But I find it so interesting that they didn't need to believe in Jesus for him to bless them. They didn't know all the truth of Jesus to get their meal because Jesus is going to bless who he's going to bless and Jesus' love and abundance and provision goes beyond just people who believe. They receive the miracle even though they don't have true faith in Jesus and their response to this miracle, this is the part we don't look at in the text, is they want more. They're in. Jesus, we just, did you see what he did with those fish and that bread? More, more, more. You're going to be our king. And they're starting to plot and to plan to take him by force. They're going to capture him and, and hold a cue, a cue and, 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 and he's going to be the new king. We're going to take over Rome. They wanted Jesus for what he would do in their own physical life here and now. They wanted an earthly king, not a heavenly king. But the truth is that people are still following Jesus for what they hope he might get for them. Do you, you want any evidence of that? I guarantee you, when, when, when people sit down for their SAT test, people are really into God. Get me a good score on this, God. People are still focused on how Jesus will make this life better for them. They want to make him king in a way that's more about getting their bellies full and their own needs being met than have anything to do with understand the larger reality, the larger life that Jesus is calling. People still receive the provision of love with Jesus, even without the belief because we have a God who lavishes. The other character in the story is Jesus. We've talked about him throughout, his intentionality with his disciples. He's growing his disciples by testing them. When it says test, don't read that as trapping or tempting. It's more about examining or proving. It's a, it's a much more learning lab environment than a courtroom environment. He meets the physical needs of the crowd. He uses their physical needs to point to an eternal need later in John, very shortly after this. You've got to keep reading. We're just looking at 15. But all of a sudden, this, I'm the bread of life. You can eat all this bread and you're still going to hunger, but I have come. And all this, now we've got a wine in chapter 2 that he's blessed. Now we have this abundance of bread. In What's all that pointing to? His broken body and his shed blood. He's declaring in these signs that I am this meal for all. And my broken body, my shed blood. He is saying to the crowd, I am like Moses, yeah, but I am so much more. Clearly communicating his messiahship, his godship, he rejects the response of the crowd after the miracle. He rejects 
their desire for him to be the king. He came to fulfill what his father sent him to do, not what the people wanted him to do. In fact, Marianne May Thompson, a great theologian at Fuller, says this in this text, that Jesus resists the temptation to glory in the people's enthusiasm. He retreats. Remember, Jesus is fully human. He came to do an eternal mission. People are really excited. I'm not sure I could have rejected the enthusiasm. I might be too human. That if all of you were super into me and you wanted me to go do something great, I think I would say, let's go. Jesus retreats. He's focused on pleasing his father. He's focused on fulfilling his mission and not what people want him to do. He came to establish the kingdom of God, which is bigger than earthly king, any earthly king of role, earthly role of king. There's so much in this text. I've got four things I want us to think about, but I also want to give you a save the date. There's just too much in this text. You know, you get to save the date for something in the future. Here's the sermons I want to preach to you really quick. I think there's something deeply significant about the leftovers in this story. The care in which Jesus says, grab all the extra so that nothing goes to waste. The significance of 12 baskets. What that means, that he blessed this group of people to their fill, but there was still more for them to give. The idea that Jesus blesses us, not just so that we have full bellies, but we have a responsibility to go fill bellies. There's so much in these baskets and the leftovers I want to talk about. I also want to talk more about the boy, but you hear me talk about that all the time. You need, we need this. I think the testing part of his disciples is something we need to talk about and admit that for many of us, it's like we we carry around the graduate degree when we've only been accepted in and there's more learning and discipleship and growth to do. That Jesus isn't just concerned about your Sunday attendance and your occasional reading of the scripture. He wants to transform everything about us. I would love to preach that sermon. So there's your save the dates. I don't know when we're gonna do that. But for today, four applications. Number one, we have to see that Jesus sees and provides for practical needs. This is who Jesus is. Our needs in this life matter to him. He is a God who sees us and comes to us in those needs. No one could imagine what Jesus was gonna do with five pieces of bread and two fish And honestly, you might not be able to imagine what he's going to do to provide for you that's equally as crazy. Something that feels so small and insignificant around you or near you and how he's going to come into your life to meet the very real needs. He sees what is going on in your life and he is interested in providing for you in your life. We believe this so deeply at Lake Avenue Church and we have for dozens, decades. That's why we have things like a community outreach ministry. That's why we have, and you might not know this, a neighborhood center that during the week anybody from the street can walk up and we will help connect them with resources. Some of you know the best kept secret at Lake Avenue Church. His name is John Bolin. We dedicate staff dollars and time because physical needs matter and we believe that Jesus calls us as a church to do that. We have care deacons. Many of you are care deacons. We walk life with people. In their time of very real physical needs, we come alongside, meet them, but also help to point them to something bigger. Because physical needs matter to Jesus, they matter to us. It's not social work. You can't just label it with whatever word is convenient. It's because this is who Jesus is and there were 12 baskets left over and we will participate in the kind of work that Jesus does. Number two, Jesus is more abundant than we can imagine. Lake Avenue Church, you know that Jesus cannot be contained within our calculations? Jesus cannot be contained within our planning? Jesus cannot be contained within our own assessments? When we see limitations, Jesus does not. You and I live in a scarcity mindset and Jesus is a God of abundance. So when the calculations don't seem like they make human sense, the question is do we have eyes and expectations that Jesus is gonna show up? At the end of this service, we're gonna take a second offering. This is the one time a year we take an offering to get our kids and our students to camp. 
Now, can we just have a little, if you're visiting, family chat. Our giving is down this year. In fact, the last two weeks, I've been in hours of meetings because the budget we are probably going to be proposing next year has a half a million dollar adjustment, that means cut, from this year's budget. And so we're in deep planning right now to ask the question, how do we adjust our budget given the reality of where the giving is? Now, we're doing a second offering today that sits outside of all that. And if we were doing human calculations and if we have human responses, we go, why on earth would we take a second offering right now when we're hundreds of thousand dollars behind our budget? That doesn't make sense. That's not wise. That's not best practice. We shouldn't be doing that. And I would say this, I think that's a scarcity mindset. I understand that the calculations don't seem to add up for some of us, and conventional wisdom might say this would be the year to pause on this scholarship. But I believe that Jesus is more abundant than we can imagine. And I want you to know that I have zero, zero fear that, not getting, kid, that getting kids to camp is somehow going to hurt Lake Avenue Church. I have zero fear that by taking a second offering that somehow this is the beginning of, I don't know. I believe this, that whatever the budget is next year, whatever the budget ends this year, it's what God has given us and we will steward it all. I believe in all honesty that each one of us have enough bread and fish in our own homes that if we all brought that together, we'd be fine on the budget and we'd send every kid to camp who needs a dollar. I believe that because we have a God of abundance. And so today, when the calculations don't seem to add up, just know this, if there's not scholarships like the one we're taking today, there is no Jeff Matisich following Jesus, I promise you, and my mom is here, and if she was an extrovert, she would stand up and go, amen! Because when the calculations weren't working in our home, Community Presbyterian Church in Ventura, California, said to this one family who, who with two little boys without a dad, we're gonna get you to camp every year. So we're gonna do it because we have a God of abundance and he will blow us away with his provision. Jesus is more abundant than we can imagine. And this is connected, number three. You, you need to know this, Jesus came to set up a kingdom and not run a government. I hope you see this in the text. Jesus came to set up a kingdom and not run a government. Now you're starting to get worried, why are we going political, I'm not. I'm not a political scientist, I'm not even a political hobbyist, but let me assure you in my study this week, every commentator, every respected Bible scholar across the spectrum agrees that what we see in this text is, is Jesus resisting to be, to be condensed into a political figure for the Jewish people. And the kingdom reality, when they're starting to cheer him on, we want you to be king, he retreats. There's something deeply significant there that we must look at. I think it's part of that blinking light. Jesus has not come to run the government. He hasn't come to take over Rome. He has come to set up a new way of living, and his new way of living is not going to be limited to country and political systems, political parties, or anything else like that. He came to inaugurate. That's the fancy church word. He came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So notice that when the people desire and want him to simply run their government, he leaves, he retreats. He doesn't stick around for that kind of limitation. I want you to know this, the noise is loud. The news is harsh. I am not minimizing, I am not minimizing our broken world has broken systems and that we have broken leaders and, and that they're hurting people with very real needs. Remember Jesus sees and provides for those kinds of needs. It's all true, but do not think that the answer to this issue is somehow to focus on the government and the empire. That if we just elect Jesus, everything will be better. When we put our faith in human beings and human institutions above the kingdom of God and above Jesus as the ultimate king of the universe, we can set our own identity in country over kingdom. When I came to Lake Avenue Church in September of 1999, the thing that blew me away I walked in for the first time into these doors and there were all these flags in the lobby. You remember that? And I remember, why, what, what's that about? It was the first time ever told me that this idea of the kingdom and the work that God has called Lake Avenue Church to and it taught me in that moment that my primary citizenship was to the kingdom of God. And yes, yes, I'm an American. 
but the president isn't the authority in my life. Jesus is the authority in my life. So let's admit, especially around election times that just go on forever now, that we're tempted to be like the crowds and limit Jesus to run a political system or a political party or certain policies, but Jesus has come to set up the kingdom of God. In John 18, Jesus and Pilate, before Jesus is to die, listen to Jesus tell you what he came. They have this whole conversation about king. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And then listen to this. Jesus said, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. We have to see that Jesus came to set up a kingdom, and this text shows us that, that he's, it's a bigger reality. Yes, there's physical world matters to him. He's gonna provide for us. He's gonna provide in abundance, but he's also calling us to understand who he really is and not limit him to a governmental position. But these are our cravings. We want a Jesus who does something for me, who makes my life better, and if that's the way I can understand my life getting better, then that's where I want Jesus, and so forth is, I hope you see this, Jesus wants to change our appetites and our cravings. Jesus wants us to long for the kingdom over the empire. Jesus wants us to long for Jesus over ourselves. Jesus wants to take us away from scarcity mindsets to an abundant mindset. And while the crowds wanted more, the crowds wanted a political leader, the crowds wanted the miracle worker, Superman, Jesus came not to simply give us what we want, but he came to transform the things that we want. To not just hunger for earthly things, but in Matthew 5, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to watch this blessing of Jesus with the fish and the loaves. I think it would have been powerful to see, to see what God will do with such a small beginning and how it will have such large impact. I, I wish I could be there, but I, I think the truth is we have an opportunity to be there every day. We have an opportunity to be there even now. I invite Nancy and Chuck to come up. Um, we have an opportunity to see what God will do with a couple fish and some small loaves, and we're gonna take that offering. We're gonna get some kids to camp. I believe this, as I said, there's plenty. There's plenty for this, there's plenty to get back on track. So let's give what we have, what we can, and watch Jesus blow away our calculations. Chuck and Nancy, will you lead us from here? Thanks, Jeff. You may know this already, but I'm going to say it again. The majority of people who make a decision to follow Jesus make that decision before the age of 18. The majority of those people make that decision at a camp, at a place where they've been able to be separated away from their everyday, day-to-day, and allow themselves to engage what God's doing in their world and in their life so that they might see Jesus more clearly. And I think there's something about getting kids to camp. 25 years of youth ministry would teach me that. The times that my church stepped up to the plate to get me to camp so that I could give my life over to the Lord again and again and again would tell me that. Those moments are real and hopeful. And we have the ability to be the fish in the loaves. I heard a story this morning about the commencement speaker at Morehouse College in Atlanta. Morehouse College in Atlanta is a historically black college. Martin Luther King went there, a bunch of others, but the commencement speaker happened to be a billionaire, and that billionaire decided to give enough money to cover all of the student loans of the class of 2019. 
That's vision, y'all. That's someone who sees the capacity and knows the barriers and is removing the barriers so kids can go do what they are supposed to do, what they got trained to do. And if we would have the same vision about Jesus in the lives of our kids, we would give more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine so that kids can come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's, that's our responsibility in this moment our loaves and fishes. Not the billions, but our loaves and fishes to do something wonderful. Something I love so much about this church is not only do we care about the kids within our community, within our church family, and want to make sure they get to camp, but we also care about our kids in our immediate community surrounding this church. So we're going to invite the ushers forward, and as you give generously, I want to tell you that the camp scholarships that we're going to be granting this year are not just for our church family, although we want to make sure that any kid that is part of our church family gets to church and that finances are not an issue. We're also going to be providing camp scholarships for kids that come to our church through our STARS ministries, through our after-school program, through our mentoring programs. So, and I also wanted to tell you that we have some generous donors in our church that care so much about kids getting to camp that they're going to match anything that comes in in the plates today. Right? So, as Jeff so eloquently reminded us, we serve a God of abundance. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church family and for the place you have put us here in Pasadena. Lord, you knew, you knew that this church would be important in the life of our immediate community, and I praise you and thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for all that we do through our community outreach, God. Thank you that people see this church as a place that cares about them and loves them. And God, I wanna pray for all of the camp experiences that will happen this summer, for all the kids that will see you in a new way, God that may come to know you for the very first time as they're outside their environment with caring adults who love them and where they hear of who you are and what you have done for them. So God, I pray over this time right now, uh, Lord, that you would just um, move in this room and help us know what our part in that is, Lord, and that we can give, God. Thank you for all the ways you're in work in our students, in our families, in our world. We pray these things in your name. Amen.